This episode is brought to you by State Farm. From your morning podcast to your afternoon playlist, State Farm knows you personalize your entire day. And that's why State Farm helps you personalize your insurance with the State Farm Personal Price Plan. It offers coverage options that help protect what you care about most at an affordable price just for you. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices vary by state. Options selected by customer. Availability and eligibility may vary. We got another day of NBA action. And with FanDuel, every night is a watch party. So it's time for your FanDuel crew to make their bets. So, what's the move tonight, gang? You know that new customers who bet $5 get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Ooh, we're heating up, fam. Bet all the stars with all your friends and make every moment more only on FanDuel. New customers bet $5, get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Make every moment more with FanDuel. It goes down in the field. It go down. It go down in the field. 21 plus and present in Virginia. First online real money wager only. $10 first deposit required. Bonus issued is non-patrollable bonus vest that expires seven days after receipt. See full terms at fanduel.com slash sportsbook. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Nineteen ninety nine was a year of highs and lows in America. The Discovery Space Shuttle made its first successful voyage to the International Space Station. The women's national soccer team defeated China in the FIFA Women's World Cup. SpongeBob SquarePants debuted on television. But this was also the year of the infamous Columbine Massacre, President Bill Clinton's impeachment, and for the people of Bridge Creek and Moore, Oklahoma, it was the year the most powerful tornado in recorded history destroyed their hometowns. On the evening of May 3rd, survivor Charlie Cusack of Moore, Oklahoma, emerged from the shelter of his basement bathroom, along with his wife, Pam, and their two girls. It was difficult for Charlie to get the door open. Something was blocking it. But after a few heavy pushes, it finally gave way. Stumbling forward, Charlie realized a ceiling fan had been wedged against the door. What disturbed him the most was that it wasn't even his ceiling fan. It belonged to the neighbors. As he walked out into the hall, he realized there was no longer a hall to walk out into, nor was there a house. The tornado had reduced everything to rubble. But he had to be grateful. The family's choice of shelter had miraculously saved them. The bathroom was all that was left standing. And as the Cusacks made their way through what was left of their home, they realized that the rest of the neighborhood had not fared much better. All they could see in every direction was destruction. The aggressive smells of freshly cut wood, burnt metal, and gasoline stung their nostrils. Perhaps the most frightening thing was that there was no one else in sight. But they were alive. They had survived. And it was time to rebuild. Welcome to Survival, a ParCast original. 
I'm your host, Irma Blanco. And I'm Tim Johnson. Every Monday, we'll take you inside incredible true stories of life or death situations. This is our final episode on the Bridge Creek Moore tornado of May 3rd, 1999. Today, we'll follow the survivors of the tornado as they find their homes destroyed and work with the federal government to put the pieces back together. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. We also now have merchandise. Head to parcast.com slash merch for more information. Several miles southwest of the Cusack household, five survivors limped out from beneath the shelter of a freeway overpass. Among them were Kevin Weber, 39, Scott Pittman, 35, and Levi Walton, 11. Their ears rang after suffering rapid changes in air pressure and the intense pitch of the tornadic winds. Their skin stung after being blasted by sand, and both Kevin and Scott had leg injuries. Young Levi surveyed the road. It was littered with overturned and mangled cars. In the distance, fires burned. Electrical explosions dotted the horizon. The black cloud of the storm could still be seen to the north. He turned around to the older men. Speaking for the first time, he asked, Where's my mama? Neither had an answer to give him. Levi's mother, Kathleen Walton, had been pulled from underneath the overpass by 300-mile-an-hour winds. The adults knew that it was unlikely she had survived. It would take another 40 minutes before an ambulance could safely reach them. The hospital, where the ambulances were headquartered, had only minutes before also been under a tornado emergency. The survivors had many questions. Had the tornadoes stopped? Was Oklahoma City still intact? Was the tornado an F5? How many were dead? But the ambulance drivers knew about as much as they did. All they could do was tend to the survivors' wounds. In a quote for Tulsa World, Kevin said, My doctor described it best. He said it just looked like somebody sandblasted your back and then ran a weed eater across it a couple of times. His leg was also indeed broken. Scott Pittman stayed with the young Levi. In a story for the Oklahoman, he described holding the boy's hand as they rode in an ambulance together. At the hospital, Scott would find out that some sort of metal road sign had sliced open his thigh to the bone. Fortunately, Levi's wounds were not as severe. After being patched up, Scott tried to keep Levi's spirits up. He told him he would look after him and help him find his mother. But then the bad news came. Kathleen had been found dead miles away from the overpass. Her body was brutalized by the tornado. Levi's father had not been in his life for years, and so he had no clear legal guardian. He was to be taken into foster care. 
As the two were separated, Scott rapidly scribbled his phone number down and handed it to Levi. He urged the boy to keep in contact. The nearby Storm Prediction Center in Norman, Oklahoma, had briefly had to suspend their operations when the F-5 passed near their offices. Luckily, Norman hadn't sustained nearly the amount of damage that Bridge Creek and Moore had. The meteorologists quickly resumed their tracking of the storm. It was well into the evening, and Storm Cell A, the storm housing the F-5 tornado, now designated as A-9, was not slowing down. This was the same tornado that had destroyed Bridge Creek and more an hour earlier. It continued its journey northeast and officially entered Oklahoma County. Whereas previously the storm had only affected the suburban and rural counties surrounding Oklahoma City, it was now getting dangerously close to the state capital. As discussed in part one, Meteorologists feared that this could mean death and destruction on an unheard of scale. The one bright spot was that Tornado A9 had decreased somewhat in intensity and was now regarded as an F2. Regardless, the city began to evacuate its sporting events. There were baseball games in progress at major arenas, and the patrons had to be funneled into underground storage space. This in and of itself was horrific. Citizens had to hunker down in the dark, squished between strangers, unsure if the tornado would come through and topple the stadium down onto their heads. The Storm Center continued to issue warnings for Oklahoma City, Dell City, and Midwest City. They were horrified to find that the wind speeds were picking up again, elevating the tornado to F4 status. It plowed forward into southeast Oklahoma City. It began to kill again. A more densely populated area with more infrastructure meant more dangerous situations. The American Freightways Company consisted of a large dock that opened onto a truck yard full of trailers. Unable to close the building off to the outdoors, the employees huddled in a far corner of the garage. This was as good a survival tactic as any. Distance from the open air would keep them from being sucked outside. But for some, it wouldn't be enough. Drivers Jerry Joe Webb and Anthony Battaglia were killed after they were crushed by a shipping container blown into the dock by the tornado. Impossibly, the situation briefly became even worse as Supercell A produced two more nearby tornadoes, dubbed A-10 and A-11. Luckily, these two new arrivals were designated as F-Zero tornadoes, and they caused little damage before burning out quickly. A-9, however, was still in full force as it headed northeast through Oklahoma County. It was becoming clear that it would maintain its northeast course and bypass the downtown area. This was a small consolation as the tornado fell upon heavily populated suburban areas. Ten more people would be killed as A-9 demolished neighborhoods. They were crushed by their homes, impaled by flying debris, and thrown great distances. As meteorologists despaired and emergency services rushed to respond, Tornado A-9 traveled a few more blocks through eastern Oklahoma County, 
before finally dissipating back into the sky. It was 8.25 p.m., and the Storm Prediction Center and Weather Service could finally withdraw their tornado emergency. They could only be thankful that the tornado didn't take any more lives. In addition to the dozens who perished in the storm, hundreds were injured. Reports indicate that some citizens showed up to the hospital looking like pincushions, with their skin pierced by countless splinters. The sun was setting over a landscape of nearly 3,000 damaged or destroyed homes and many destroyed businesses. In some places, electrical fires and crumbling concrete was all that remained of the infrastructure. Charlie Cusack would later share the story of the moments after the tornado with author Nancy Mathis. As his family continued to journey out into what was left of their neighborhood, they found that the girls' school had been destroyed. The black tar from the new roof had been splattered across the street. Within the street itself were multiple overturned cars, including a large truck. The family would later learn that their block had incurred the largest number of fatalities. Four of their neighbors were dead. The Cusacks wandered aimlessly for a few minutes before Charlie's brother miraculously arrived in his truck. He had been watching the storm nearby from their parents' house as it descended on Charlie's neighborhood. The brother took them to stay with Charlie's parents, who offered their home as a temporary shelter. Charlie would later tell Nancy Mathis that he and his wife Pam made multiple trips back to the ruins of their home to salvage what they could. They never made it through a single one of these sessions without shedding a few tears. On a slightly lighter note, Pam avoided making tacos in the future. The kids thought they were bad luck. Kevin Weber would be released from the hospital early the morning of May 4th. While his injuries were significant, they paled in comparison to what others suffered. It also helped that his wife was a nurse at the hospital and could assist him with home care. A few days later, he would tell Tulsa World that his muscles were still knotted from the extreme duress that they'd been put under during the tornado. Scott Pittman and Levi Walton continued to talk by phone over the next few weeks as Levi's guardianship was established. Both his neighbors and relatives indicated to the Oklahoman that they would pursue custody. As the survivors would all soon find out, surviving the tornado was not the same thing as surviving the rebuild. On the morning of May 4th, daylight illuminated the destruction. Those who no longer had homes bunked at local churches and other public buildings. They awoke without the first idea of how to rebuild their lives. A series of complex problems now presented themselves. How would citizens get a hold of the machinery needed to clear heavy debris? If assistance was provided, how could they make sure that precious items hidden beneath the debris weren't destroyed in the cleanup? How could they get into contact with their insurance companies? How soon could they rebuild? Where would they stay in the meantime? Where would they get food and clean water? 
where were they supposed to shower? The solutions to these problems required a level of funds and coordination that transcended the capabilities of just the local state government and emergency services. Indeed, the rebuild would fall on the shoulders of a higher authority, the administration of then-current President of the United States, Bill Clinton. Next up, the Clinton administration works to provide the citizens of Oklahoma with relief. And now, back to the story. On May 3, 1999, 11 counties in Oklahoma were devastated by a series of tornadoes, the worst of which was an F5 that took 36 lives. On May 4, 1999, help arrived. After assessing the situation overnight, FEMA, the United States Federal Emergency Management Agency, recommended that President Bill Clinton issue a major disaster declaration authorizing the agency to act. He did so immediately. FEMA reported that on the first day of their deployment, they were able to launch two teams of disaster specialists, seven air patrol units, and a plethora of survival resources. The disaster specialists, in particular, were able to engage local government, emergency services, and citizens. They helped them to assess and catalog all damage, and made recommendations to larger government authorities as to how to go about rebuilding. At this point, organization was key to survival. A haphazard approach to rebuilding could mean delays, and delays could mean that individuals were stranded without basic essentials, such as a roof over their head and running water. Furthermore, in Oklahoma, there was always the chance that a different tornado could be right around the corner. It would be disastrous if a new storm caught the locals without any shelter at all. Air patrols were able to get the best view of the damage, which they then shared with those below and the nation at large. The images from these helicopters show fields of debris resembling a landfill. Suburban grids form a yin-yang of green and brown between the halves of neighborhoods that were hit and the halves that were spared. Most surreal was the large brown path of the tornado, as if God took an eraser and dragged it across Oklahoma County. FEMA reported that the American Red Cross provided food and shelter for nearly 1,500 victims the night of May 4th. It would be seven to 10 days before power could be restored to the area. Until then, the neighborhoods were largely uninhabitable. As the Army Corps of Engineers arrived to assist with the rebuild, they limited access to the most damaged areas to prevent looting. Some stubborn Oklahomans didn't take kindly to the government moving into their neighborhood and telling them what to do. Using routes not known to the visiting federal troops, some locals were able to return to their homes and begin to scavenge for their remaining belongings. It is, of course, not advisable to gain unauthorized entry to a disaster area. In the case of Oklahoma County in May 1999, there was still significant danger in the rubble. 
The power grid had been ravaged, and so it was possible that live, loose power lines were exposed. Open gas lines could potentially ignite. Large structures that were half destroyed threatened to fall on top of anyone nearby. Even worse, someone mistakenly suspected of looting might be harmed by angry locals or patrolling military. Luckily, however, the local population was largely cooperative with federal relief efforts. As the days progressed, the Red Cross shelters emptied as individuals were able to either move back into half-repaired homes or relocate to lodging in neighboring towns. The weather did not always cooperate. Though there were no more tornadoes, rain slowed the work of the Army Corps of Engineers. With or without the weather on their side, it would take weeks to clear the miles and miles of debris. Once the debris was cleared, the fight for survival for some families would still not be over. The reality was that financial aid would be necessary to help the area fully recover. The cost of rebuilding often outpaced the returns from homeowners' insurance, if the individual in question even had any. The obstacles ahead seemed insurmountable. Then, on May 9th, the President of the United States arrived in Oklahoma. President Bill Clinton was experiencing a unique year in his presidency. He had recently survived impeachment proceedings in February of 1999. The Senate voted not to charge him with perjury in relation to a sexual harassment lawsuit, and now he was trying to salvage what was left of his image. He was expected to make a speech in Oklahoma County outlining his plan for the rebuilding efforts. This was somewhat awkward for a few reasons. For one, the words did not exist to describe the pain this community was going through. It didn't seem possible to console thousands who had lost their homes and their fellow Americans. Second, this was a county that Clinton, who ran as a Democrat, had lost in the 1996 presidential election. In fact, their vote may have cost him the state. Would they even want to hear from him when many were opposed to his entire administration? There were also the class tensions that would be palpable for any visiting president. This was a middle and lower class area that had, at least for the time being, been reduced to virtual poverty. And now Clinton had to show up, as any president would, riding in his world-class helicopter and wearing a suit. At least at first, this man didn't seem like he had anything to offer in terms of helping the community to survive. Indeed, one photo from May 9th shows a spray-painted sign that read, Clinton, grab a shovel. Regardless, a large crowd showed up to hear him speak. Oklahoma Governor Frank Keating, a Republican, took the stage first. He commended his constituents for their calm in the face of the disaster. In nearly a week of cleanup, there had been no reported incidents of looting and no need to institute a curfew. It's certainly possible that the population's relative calm allowed for emergency services and federal relief organizations to work more efficiently. 
This would have led to increased survival rates, as those who were trapped beneath rubble were rescued within hours, and the injured were treated quickly. As Clinton took the stage, the applause was slightly less enthusiastic than it had been for the governor. The president appeared in a navy button-up with rolled-up sleeves, avoiding the stodgy look of a full suit. He began his speech by thanking a long list of federal and local government officials. This may have been better left for the end of the speech. It was an ineffective tactic to tell the large crowd how wonderfully their elected officials were performing while they were standing in the literal rubble of their lives. However, the president then quickly transitioned into an appeal to their shared roots. Clinton had been born in Arkansas and served two terms there as governor. Arkansas is a southern state that, like Oklahoma, experiences a large number of tornadoes. With this commonality established, Clinton made another smart choice by admitting that even despite his experience with tornadoes, he had never seen anything as bad as this. He let the crowd know that their pain was especially unique. With a human connection established, it was time for the president to lay out his plan for this community's survival. He first made it clear that the Department of Labor would provide $12 million toward temporary jobs while the community rebuilt. This was key to restoring the area. Many had lost not just their homes, but the businesses where they worked. Without jobs, they would have no money to put toward rebuilding. They would have no money to survive. By actually paying the local populace to rebuild, the government would ensure that the community recovered. This wouldn't be enough, however. There was still future storms to consider. Oklahoma didn't just need to rebuild, it needed to fortify itself. To that end, the president complimented the work of the weather forecasters who had saved many lives by warning citizens in advance to get underground. In fact, the National Weather Service had issued the first ever tornado emergency during the storm, a standalone alert that told citizens a damaging storm was about to be on top of them. This was different from the usual tornado watches and tornado warnings, which, as mentioned, were same old, same old for many Oklahomans. The tornado emergency didn't just say, there might be a tornado. It said, there will be a tornado and it could kill you. The train of data from on-the-ground watchers to the Storm Prediction Center to the National Weather Service and then out to the public saved hundreds of lives. Not bad work for the people that many write off as only being good for letting the populace know if there's a 50% chance of rain. President Clinton wanted to better equip these meteorologists going forward and voiced his support for funds to be allocated towards that purpose in that year's congressional budget. He especially wanted to see the development of more advanced Doppler radar. Doppler radar is a key instrument in meteorology. It functions in the same way as any radar, sending energy out, which then bounces off of an object and returns. In the case of meteorology, this allows forecasters to gauge the size, speed, and direction of a storm. 
and indeed, improvements would be made over the years. In the modern era, Doppler radar can even show meteorologists what type of precipitation a storm is outputting, which gives them that much more of an idea as to whether the storm might produce a tornado. Again, this has saved hundreds, if not thousands, of lives. Clinton ended his speech by pleading for Oklahomans to use a portion of the relief funds that would be allocated to them toward building concrete-supported rooms within their homes. Even at that point in time, there was enough data to show that the vast majority of severe weather can be survived from within such a room. A basement or first-floor concrete-enforced room is not going to crumble or be sucked off its foundations. For those who lived in mobile homes, the recommended solution was to build an underground storm shelter. This was the single most important step Oklahomans could take to ensure their continued survival. And so Clinton's speech, and more importantly, his administration's response, had a positive impact on Oklahoma County's survival. And as May 1999 progressed, many of the locals had their fears assuaged. It was confirmed that debris removal could not take place on a property without local approval, which meant that citizens would have time to scrounge for any meaningful items before their destroyed homes were fully demolished and cleared. FEMA funds were used to pay for 100% of this removal, and additional funds went toward rebuilding infrastructure. The latter was key to survival, as it restored basic needs and returned the highways to drivable condition. By May 13, 1999, 10 days after the storm, cleanup left authorities reasonably confident that the total number of dead had been accounted for. All in all, Supercell A had claimed 36 lives. Though these losses could never be replaced, by May 18th, thousands of residents had been granted over $1 million in funds to be used towards getting back on their feet. FEMA specialists evaluated each home to ensure that homeowners were allocated the necessary amount of funds. Almost $5 million was granted in small business loans. By July of 1999, things had reached a new state of normal. Many were in new homes or had new jobs. Of course, some were still trying to find ways to cope without loved ones. But the shelters were closed and almost $70 million in federal aid had gone toward rebuilding. Ultimately, it was not the United States' deadliest tornado. That terrible honor still belonged to the 1925 tri-state tornado that claimed nearly 700 lives. That tragic body count can likely be attributed to that decade's lack of significant storm warning technology and inferior building standards. However, as already mentioned, Tornado A9 was the most powerful tornado in recorded history, meaning it had the fastest wind speeds. And the resulting damage meant that it was especially expensive, causing over $1 billion in damage. 
at the time. This meant it was the third most costly tornado in U.S. history. Unfortunately, that would change in just 14 years' time. Because on May 20th, 2013, nature would again test the city of Moore, Oklahoma. Next up, find out if 14 years of preparation were enough to help the people of Moore survive their second F5 tornado. And now, back to the story. On May 3, 1999, Moore, Oklahoma was hit with the most powerful tornado in history. On May 20, 2013, cyclonic death was again about to visit the small town. Storm chasers Heidi Farrar and David Demko had heard the same broadcast that everyone else had. At 2.40 p.m., the National Weather Service issued a storm warning for Moore, Oklahoma. There was a high probability of severe weather, possibly a tornado. Heidi watched the storm through her binoculars. She could see the precipitation zone off to her right and the funnel cloud dead ahead. It was that awkward moment every meteorologist faces when they have to keep their enthusiasm to see a tornado in check against the concern for the people in the area. Her view of the funnel cloud became obscured by rain. But then, the familiar, ominous noise drifted across the prairie, carried on the wind. Heidi turned back to David in the car. It was time to get driving. In the 14 years since the Bridge Creek Moore tornado of 1999, Oklahoma County's tornado preparedness had both increased and stayed the same. The nearby National Weather Service and Storm Prediction Center offices in Norman, Oklahoma, had experienced a great deal of innovation. Improved Doppler radar, sophisticated computer prediction models, and even better cameras meant that a storm could now be predicted days ahead of time, and a tornado's potential trajectory could be charted more accurately. All of this meant that those who listened to weather forecasts in the area had a better chance of survival than ever before. But it remained to be seen whether citizens would pay more attention this time and whether they had fortified their homes. By 3 p.m., local meteorologists knew that this wasn't going to be a low-damage tornado that fizzled out after a few minutes. A tornado had formed. It was on the ground, and it was following the same path as the 1999 twister. A rare tornado emergency was issued, which again is an alert that suggests not that there might be a tornado, but that there definitely is one. Those who hear or see a tornado emergency alert must get underground or risk losing their lives. Wind speeds suggested that this was an EF4 tornado, a tornado capable of extreme damage. In 2013, meteorologists were now using the Enhanced Fujita Scale, which features wind speed categories more reflective of observed tornadoes from recent years, such as the one in Oklahoma in 1999. An EF4 tornado may reach speeds of up to 200 miles per hour. 
local meteorologists were less timid in their broadcast than they had been in 1999. Oklahoma News Channel 4 Chief Meteorologist Mike Morgan referred to the storm as a May 3rd event, recalling the 1999 storm. He wanted viewers to know that this storm bore all the indicators of being a killer. Most on-air meteorologists that day recommended getting to an underground shelter or fleeing to a safer area. Whereas in the past, they might have recommended hiding under a staircase or laying down in a ditch, they now knew from experience that it is difficult to survive any F4 or F5 tornado without underground shelter. But even with all their new technology and experience, at a certain point, all the meteorologists could do was wait to see if people listened. Heidi and David had followed the tornado from the road, scared but determined to continue to collect data on the storm. They watched the tornado grow from a classic gray funnel to a roaring black monster. And indeed, meteorologist and Norman were now tracking a two-mile-wide tornado. Heidi watched from the passenger seat in horror as thick jets of water and wind shot across the surface of the highway. She grew angry as she saw many people pulled over to the side of the road, taking pictures. She screamed, get out of here, from the rolled down window. To the south, the tornado began its reign of destruction. In rural areas, oil fields and ranches were especially vulnerable. About 15 miles south of Oklahoma City, at the corner of Southwest 149th Street and Western Avenue, an oil production facility was caught in the tornado's path. Massive industrial equipment was twisted like a paperclip. Oil storage tanks weighing tons were thrown a mile away. Half a mile to the north, the Orr Family Farm tourist attraction and horse stable braced itself for impact. The Orrs themselves were away at church, but a rider, Lando Height, tried to free over a hundred horses from their stalls. He felt they would have a better chance of escaping the storm if they could race across the prairie rather than being stuck in a pen. Lando claims to have survived by hiding underneath a large truck. While vehicles are most often not suitable shelter in a tornado, his gamble apparently paid off, and he lived through the storm. But the same could not be said for a majority of the horses. Again, there are few survival options for humans when confronted with an F4 or an F5, much less for an animal as large as a horse. As the animals tried to escape, some were sucked into the air and flung across the county. Others were shredded or impaled by debris zipping through the air. By the time the tornado had moved on and the Orr family arrived home, they could only confirm that 36 of the 100 or so horses at the farm had survived. Unfortunately, things would only get worse as the tornado traveled northeast into Moore. 1999 repeated itself as the tornado began demolishing homes. But inside, many survived as they hunkered down in storm shelters newly built throughout the previous decade. 
but nature has a way of increasing the difficulty of survival, and the 2013 tornado now lurched towards the most terrible of targets, an elementary school. It would actually destroy not one, but two schools that afternoon. But of the two, Plaza Towers Elementary would fare the worst. During a tornado, every parent struggles with the decision of whether to check their child out of school or not. Some feel better having their family under their own roof or in their own shelter. But this can be a dangerous choice. If caught on the road in between home and school, then no one in the family is better off. But sometimes, if the tornado is still far enough away, trying to make it home to a basement or storm shelter is a better choice. Not every school is well equipped with a storm shelter or reinforced concrete room. And unfortunately for the students and teachers of Plaza Towers Elementary, such was the case with their building. As the tornado fell upon the school, it immediately began to tear the roof off. Children screamed as bits of steel, insulation, and even whole cinder blocks rained down on their heads. Debris whipped by at hundreds of miles an hour, slicing into their backs. In an extreme act of compassion, teacher Karen Marinelli threw herself on top of three six-year-old students she cried out in pain as she felt the roof of the hallway collapse onto her back. As the tornado continued its journey north, it left half of the school standing. Teachers recalled how the deafening roar of the tornado gave way to the deafening cries of the students. They ushered them out of the rickety classrooms and into the hallways. What remained of the school was chilling. The hallways were filled with ceiling insulation and other debris. Sunlight peeked through holes in the ceiling, illuminating loose wires that dangled like jungle vines. The colorful artwork and signage on the walls now seemed bitterly ironic. Some classrooms collapsed completely, trapping or killing those caught inside. The cinder block and steel construction of the school walls crushed or suffocated victims. By the time emergency crews arrived and were able to sift through the rubble, they found that seven children were killed. Miraculously, Karen Marinelli and the students she was protecting all survived. However, Karen had multiple broken bones in her back and would be wheelchair-bound for three months following the storm. By about 3.30 p.m., the tornado showed signs of weakening. It continued east across Moore, severely damaging a few more buildings before spinning out. Did the citizens of Moore have a higher rate of survival than in 1999? There are multiple comparisons that need to be made to determine this. The majority of the deaths from the storm occurred in the Plaza Towers area. There were the seven deaths at the school, as well as nine additional deaths in the surrounding neighborhood. Many of these deaths occurred in homes where bathrooms or closets were used as a shelter. As stated, 
these simply were not strong enough to withstand EF4 winds. So in this sense, it would seem that the citizens of Moore did not learn from the tornado of 1999. However, the final death toll for the 2013 tornado was 24, as opposed to the 1999 tornado's 36 deaths. This can potentially be attributed to the improved warnings from meteorologists, as well as the increased number of storm shelters in the area since the 1999 storm. Ultimately, the tornado survival rate in Oklahoma will never reach 100% until 100% of its citizens heed the advice of meteorologists and have a plan for getting underground during these storms. Every citizen should either build a storm shelter or concrete reinforced room on their property or have a plan to drive to one nearby. One improvement that would be made as a result of the 2013 tornado was to begin construction on concrete reinforced rooms inside of schools. Unfortunately, making this mandatory is prohibitively expensive. And while no child's life can have a price tag, the risk of some schools being hit by a tornado is still relatively low enough to where the cost associated with building a stormproof room is not deemed worthwhile. However, more public schools have, for the most part, overcome this obstacle. 2019 marks the successful end of a years-long project to equip all 35 of their school buildings with tornado-resistant safe rooms. For every devastating tornado, there is an equal leap forward in tornado detection and safety technology. These whirling behemoths, terrible and unpredictable though they may be, are survivable. The Cusacks, Kevin Weber, Scott Pittman, Levi Walton, and Karen Marinelli can all attest to that. But tornadic weather is a yearly test in which nature checks in to see if the citizens of Oklahoma and the rest of the American West have prepared themselves. It is up to those communities to learn from the past and heed the warnings of local experts. Stay calm, stay inside, get underground. Because while meteorologists can track tornadic weather, there is still much they do not know about tornadoes. For all of man's progress, the worst can still occur. In an instant, the clouds can begin to spin. The sky can turn black. The wind can pick up. And then... Thanks for listening to Survival. You can find all of ParCast's podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, or your favorite podcast directory. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Survival was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the ParCast Network. It's produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Kenny Hobbs, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Carly Madden and Maggie Admire. Survival is written by Greg Castro and stars Irma Blanco and Tim Johnson. <laughs>